Hello and welcome to the Copper Livid Stories pod on the World Football Index. On today's show we discuss the quarterfinals of the competition as we look at one of the most remarkable comebacks in the history of it. In Argentina, the winners of the 2014 edition are knocked out on penalties by one of their neighbours. Pure joy for Ecuadorians in Brazil and a review of an all-Brazilian clash with Austin. And it's Austin I go to first to see how he is. How are you? Where are you? And maybe one word to describe what you witnessed in the quarterfinals last week. I am doing well, Adam. Uh, probably not as well as you are doing. I know that you are probably thoroughly pleased to see only one Brazilian team left remaining in this competition. And it, and it had to be one because it was an all-Brazilian tie. So I'm sure that you are just beaming on the inside. Uh, but I'm doing well. Uh, this was kind of an insane round of matches. I think uh, absurd would be the best word to describe what I witnessed. Not necessarily altogether, but that River Wilsterman tie was... Ah, it was just absurd. That's the best way to do it. And I'm in Chicago, where it is extensively hot and shouldn't be at this time of the year, which is really frustrating. And we've also got Simon in Colombia, of course. And I think, like me, he's he's also pretty happy that we've only got one Brazilian side left to knock out now. Yeah, no, it's good. It's good to have not too much Brazilian-Argentine dominance. But I was hoping maybe Wilsterman, the plucky underdogs, my my new favourites, along with Barcelona, were going to do a job and it was looking so good. And then it, it wasn't looking so good. So we'll talk about that. How are you, Adam? How's uh, Chile? Yeah, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. Went to the beach for the first time this uh, this spring, in this morning. So yeah, things are looking up. Summer's just around the corner. Couldn't be better. Let's get started with that incredible match between Jorge Wilstermann and, and River Plate. So the first leg, the Bolivians held a 3-0 advantage and in some ways I'm kind of pleased that we didn't do a pod <laughs> after the first leg because I've got a feeling we may have all made fool, fools of ourselves after that. Who, who wants to get started telling us more about this game? After that first leg, I think you're right, Adam. It wasn't just that they were 3-0 up. It's it's that it, Wilsterman looked like they could punch with River Plate. I thought they outplayed them in Cochabamba. I thought it was a deserved result. I thought 3-0 was, despite what some Argentine com- commentators may have said, I thought it was a fair result on the basis of play. And so going into Buenos Aires, uh, Wilsterman had not conceded in, in three consecutive Libertadores matches. The thinking was, all right, look, they have to concede four to go out. That's not that bad, you know. They've defended well this competition. Yeah, they're playing away from home. Sure, River Plate have good attack, but four goals kind of feels like a lot. Uh, Four goals was not a lot. (laughs) And 36 minutes in is all it took for River to find four goals. Wilsterman went into halftime with still kind of this sliver of hope in that if they could somehow manage to score one goal, They would have been back in the tie on away goals. That hope lasted approximately 40 seconds into the second half when Nacho Skoko scored uh, his fourth of what ended up being five goals on the night in an 8-0 drubbing by River Plate of Jorge Wilstermann. And on talent, it was easy to see that this was going to happen, I guess. Uh, The Wilstermann defense, when you don't just lob long balls into it, wasn't so great. Rivers strung them out, they got them spread out, and they just ran at them. And uh, Edwards and Tenno was was really unable to, to run with any of River Plate's attackers. They got opened up kind of then after the first three went in in 19 minutes. And then from there, it was just the floodgates opened and it ended up 8-0. And yeah, it was a bit unexpected because of how that first leg went. 
but also kind of expected because Jorge Wilstermann weren't all that good of a team and River just kind of found out the best way to attack them and then proceeded to do it extensively for 90 minutes and, and were able to book a place in the semifinals. Nacho Skoko, who in that first leg was kind of the villain for the River Plate, he had two chances to get them in a, what looked like it could have been a vital away goal and he wasted them both. Uh, Wilsterman then got a third goal late, and that kind of felt like it could have been enough. Uh, and then Nacho Skoko absolutely made up for it in the second leg, scoring a hat trick in 19 minutes, adding one more right after halftime, and then a fifth 58 minutes in. And now he's just two goals back of the already eliminated Alejandro Chumacero for leading scorer in this competition. He has six goals for the tournament. Five of them came at the hands of lowly Jorge Wilsterman in the quarterfinals. <laughs> Whilst I was watching this game, a couple of things came to mind. The first of which was, I thought Wilsterman perhaps would have had just more joy putting all 11 players on the goal line because they were just absolutely clueless tactically. As soon as that first goal went in, the floodgates opened and, you know, they, they just had the, the actual difference between their performance in, in Cochabamba and the one in Buenos Aires. You, you can't just put that down to altitude. It was completely bizarre just how different it was. And and the other thing which came to mind, I remember in the 2012 Copa Libertadores, Jorge uh, San Paoli's Universidad de Chile, I think it was in the last 16, they lost 4-1 away to Deportivo Quito. It looked like and Universidad de Chile had never won the Copa, well, still haven't won the Copa Libertadores, but after winning the Copa Sudamericana the year before, they were kind of one of the favourites to, to go far in the Libertadores that year. And it looked like they were on the verge of going out. But they got Deportivo Quito back to Santiago. And a bit like this game, once the first goal went in, the floodgates opened and, and um, Universidad de Chile ended up winning that game 6-0. The fact that River won this 8-0, you know, merciless display, no, Simon? Again, I think it is important to say as well, <laughs> as bad as... Wilsterman were in the second leg. In the first leg, it was it was the best game they played in the tournament by a significant margin. Obviously, there is some altitude, but it's not La Paz. It's not crazy, and it's not as influential as some of the the stadiums in the competition. Um, so there is altitude involved. But the first leg, they were at least two or three goals better than River Plate. You know, the commentary, as you mentioned, was very much, "Oh, this has been unlucky for the Argentines." And they were quite generous, I think, for, for River in that first leg because Wilson had other chances to score and they definitely deserved a good lead from that first leg. But I think a lot of their success in this tournament has come from confidence growing. They hadn't conceded early uh, in some key games so far. They'd held out for 20, 30 minutes and you could see them growing in confidence and building a few more attacks here and there. Um, it's a real damning indictment of uh, Atletico Minero in the last leg <laughs> because... I don't think that Monero side on paper was significantly better than the Riverside. Uh, you know, at least they should have, you know, in terms of comparisons to the Wilsterman team, they should have beaten them comfortably. But again, you know, we spoke about the tactics, just crossing it into uh, Edward Centeno and you're just heading it away. Whereas River, they move the ball. I think as well, Wilsterman's formation in the second leg, they lost a lot of the organization. All of their success was built upon being very, very organized, having two solid blocks a four and a five and then a one uh, up front um, when they were looking to defend a lead and if and that kind of slipped away so as as impressive as River were in moving the ball and River really did get players forward they spread the play they really you know the the pitch there in 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 Buenos Aires 
it's a it's a big stadium. It feels feels very wide. Uh, whether that's true or not, it just the perception is it's a wide open space, and they definitely use every inch of that space in terms of spreading Wilstermann. But then also they just kind of run through the middle quite a lot as well. So I think it was a real collapse. I think Wilson had got this far on spirit, on courage, on on confidence, on you know a bit of good fortune, <laughs> quite a lot of good fortune. And all of those factors completely went out the window and they were kind of exposed for what they what they were in terms of quality. It was it came down to uh, kind of an even game between two teams. And in the end, River Plate were just a lot better uh, in terms of ability. And that really showed. Uh, so, yeah, it's a bit of a shame for Wilson. They also played very high, given that none of their defenders can run very fast at all. <laughs> um, it was quite easy just to play one or two passes, a one-two, and they were through on goal every time they were played. So, yeah, shame for Wilson. I'd, I'd watched them get through some tough opponents, and they'd got some very impressive results. So this will somewhat ta- uh, taint and uh, diminish from what is a very important uh, campaign for the club. Uh, obviously, going out with an 8-0 loss is, isn't great, but they've got some good memories from the competition that they'll take away and some good experiences. Yeah, they, they certainly have. And what about River Plate and their chances going forward in this competition? Obviously, they've had they've, they've dealt pretty well with losing a couple of their key players from this team. They, they seem to have replaced them well. I think they might still be favourites to win the competition, though, Austin. I don't, they're not favourites for me, I think. Gremio have shown to be the better team in this competition. I don't know that I'm willing to say that River have replaced the players that they've lost well. I do think it was, obviously it's, it was massive for them to not get eliminated, but the way that they just ruthlessly attacked Wilsterman will give them lots of confidence going forward because I think there were a lot of question marks for River after they left Cochabamba 3-0 down and looking like they could legitimately go out of the tournament to one of the smallest clubs in it. And then to bounce back the way that they did and not just kind of sneak through maybe on penalties or, or with a late goal. They did it so efficiently. I think does give them a lot of confidence. Nacho Skoko, I don't know if he convinces me as kind of the Eladio Drusi replacement quite yet. He's, he's a 32-year-old kind of journeyman Argentine striker. I don't know that I would rate him quite as highly as that. Uh, their defending was poor in, in the away leg against Wilsterman. And as we've kind of pointed out, it wasn't altitude. I, it didn't look like River Plate were, were getting lapazed, so to speak. It looked like they were getting outplayed. Uh, they weren't under any sort of pressure at all. Uh, their goalkeeper, uh, German Lukes, was basically had nothing to do in the second leg. So I think there are still question marks for this River team. But I do think they will be the favorite against Lanus in that semifinal. And, and I think you know they are co-favorites, if not just a bit below where I would have Gremio at this point. A very, very good team, but I still have questions about, about that attack without Eladio and Drusi, which is, I know, crazy coming after they've just scored eight goals. Uh, but I guess do it against not Edwards and Tenno, and, and then maybe I'll be convinced. <laughs> yeah, I think also um, the, the other player they brought in was Rafael Santos Borre, a Colombian, a young Colombian forward. He was trying very, very hard to score against uh, Wilson, and it wasn't quite falling for him. It'll be interesting to see how he does. He's a player who's very highly rated, um, was was an interesting player at Cali, played for Colombia uh, one, one or two times um, as a young player, moved to Spain, went to Atletico Madrid, then on loan to Villarreal, had a few games there, decent decent run at the fringes of the team, and now this is his chance to kind of make a name for himself. So if he gets a lot of games in the Argentinian league, I think he's one who could perhaps be a big boost for them 
uh, if he gets on some form and gets some games behind him, he's he's definitely got the ability. It's just for me, he's not quite a nine. He's not quite a ten. He kind of one of those floating players with great technique, but maybe not the kind of player you can rely on to be your out and out striker. We'll see. He's a player with a lot of quality, so it'll be very interesting to see how he does in the next couple of uh, couple of weeks as we move towards the next round. Yep, certainly. And let's look at who they will face in the next round. And that is, of course, Lanús of Argentina, who beat their neighbours, San Lorenzo, in a very dramatic two legs. San Lorenzo held a 2-0 advantage from the first leg. Blandi up front there for San Lorenzo with another excellent display in that game. We'll talk about him a bit more later. But Austin, this was a mightily impressive fight back from Lanús, no? Yeah, it was interesting the way that these two second these second legs kind of played out. This match was direct directly followed the River Plate Wilsterman match. So you just finished watching an eight nil. Now Lanus are at home. They need to overturn a two nil deficit on aggregate. And right away, within sixteen minutes, boom! San San Lorenzo's advantage was gone. Sans early Pepe San, and then Paschini finishing it off. So sixteen minutes in, it's already two nil. I'm sitting there thinking, oh my god, not again. I'm going to have to sit through another 7-0 defeat. San Lorenzo are just going to absolutely fold. And I think San Lorenzo did really, really well after that. They kind of stabilized themselves. And they didn't allow it to spiral out of control like we saw with Wilsterman against River Plate. A couple of chances for either side from that point on. Nobody was able to find the back of the net. So 2-0 from the first leg, 2-0 from the second leg. It went to penalties the second straight round that San Lorenzo had been in penalties after they went to penalties and defeated Emelec the round before. As so often seems to be the case in this competition, they were not able to back that up in their second trip to the penalty shootout in the knockout round. Lanus were perfect on their penalties. They were all well taken. Adam, I'm sure that you were pleased to see all of these penalties for Lanus. Well taken, into the corner, a lot of pace on them, didn't give... Novato, the San Lorenzo goalkeeper, any chance. So certainly something that you always harp on are those penalties. Lanús did them as, per- as perfectly as you could hope for. And then San Lorenzo had a couple of miscues. Uh, Caruso and then, and then Blandi himself was actually the one who, unfortunately, after having the brace in the, the first leg, was the man who uh, missed the last penalty yeah. and ended up eliminating and also, Lanus, or San Lorenzo. And also, as quite often is the case with these things, one of the players of the competition ends up being kind of a villain for his side by missing the crucial penalty in the shootout. I thought this was going to be a very difficult task for Lanus. Although, I think I said in the preview pods, I fancied them as a team that could well make the semi-finals of this competition. After that first leg of the quarterfinals, I didn't think they would mount this comeback in the second leg, mainly due to the fact I thought San Lorenzo would be capable of nicking one. And that would then mean that Lanús would need four against what is a pretty decent San Lorenzo defence, in my opinion. But as it turned out, you know, like you say, Austin, Lanús scored those two early goals. And I think it's, it's just so difficult to comprehend that kind of thing because I imagine that the team talk must have been before the game, you know, whatever you do, lads, make sure you keep it tight as possible in the, in the, you know, in the first 20 minutes. Don't give Lanus a sniff. And then 16 minutes in, they're already two goals down and, and the tie is all square again. You know, Lanus have been a real success story in Argentina over the past decade. This is the sixth time they've played the Copa Libertadores now. And their first time was only in 2008. So it's been been a pretty consistent run in the competition really for a club their size in the past 10 years 
They, of course, won the Copa Sudamericana back in 2013. So it is a club with some kind of pedigree in, in continental football here in South America. They may just upset River in the semi-finals, you know. And imagine if this side had kept hold of their star man from their championship winning team, um, Miguel uh, Amaron, who I understand has been ripping it up for Atlanta United in the MLS, no, Austin? He has, he has, but he did just get injured a couple, I think, I believe this past weekend for Atlanta United. But yeah, if this team were to have, have Almiron on it as well, and, and credit to, to Pepe Sand for San Lorenzo, the 37-year-old striker, you know, he's, he's been all around South America, all around Argentina, had a stint at Lanús back, all the way back, you know, around 2007, and now is back at Lanús, and even at 37, is scoring goals at a very high rate for them, six already in the Libertadores. He had the first one against San Lorenzo that kind of got the ball rolling in this second leg. It's players like that that kind of make this competition fun. You know, you think of a Pablo Escobar at the strongest and, and Pepe San at 37, still scoring goals for Lanús. And, and you know, he's going to be a big factor for Lanús against River Plate in that semifinal. And Adam, I think Lanús will be helped by the fact that they go to River Plate in the first leg and actually get that second leg at home. I think that'll certainly help them in the semifinal. Yeah, definitely. I, I think they can create quite a cracking atmosphere, actually, in, in, in that stadium of theirs in the second leg. And, and also, I remember seeing them a couple, getting a couple of good results in, in, uh, in the Monumental as well. Not necessarily against River, but I certainly remember, I'm, I'm pretty sure that was the venue for their 4-0 success to win the Argentine Championship last year against San Lorenzo. So they have some good memories um, of, of the stadium where they've been playing the first leg too. So, yeah, I think it's I think it's an intriguing uh, semi-final. And like I say, I, I, can, I, can see, I can see them upsetting River now that they've got this far. Let's wait and see. Simon, do you have any thoughts on this? I think that news were very impressive. Uh, I think, as you as you mentioned, the the passionate home crowd was a, an important factor in this tie. And getting those early goals again put them on the ascend, ascendancy. Uh, yeah, Sand is a nice player. It's nice. It's so valuable to have an out and out number nine target man goal scorer. It definitely gives you a point of reference, and it kind of gives you something a bit of certainty in attack. If you know there's someone in the box who's going to more likely than not put the chances away. So I think Lanús deserved this one. San Lorenzo had that penalty shout. Uh, Merlini went around the keeper and was was taken out. It was one of those ones where the, the touch was heading out of play, which kind of puts a doubt into the referee's mind. But it definitely looked like the, the, the forward was around the keeper, closest to the ball when he was taken out quite, quite strong. Perhaps a bit of luck with that one. But I think Lanús, after getting that early goal, definitely... Uh, were looked most likely in this game, and uh, they were quite impressive. I, while Adam's been a bit generous to San Lorenzo's defence, I haven't been completely convinced throughout the competition. Yeah, it was. Uh, I think they looked a little bit shaky as well in this game at times. But that said, uh, yeah, a very impressive win for impressive comeback for Lanús. And yeah, as you mentioned with River, I think there's some questions if they can be so conclusively outplayed by <laughs> Bolivia, uh, Bolivian side, a uh, uh, relatively weak Bolivian side, albeit. <laughs> before an 8-0 win you know I think if that win had been a 3-0 squeeze through we would be focusing more on that first leg defeat which I think is quite significant because if they play against that way against another team then they're going to be in trouble so they, they, they need to have more of those second leg performances and less of those first leg and or they'll be in trouble against Lanús who are who are decent and as you say in sand have a good goal scoring forward 
Yeah, indeed. Um, let's let's move on to for what for me was the was the tie of this round, and and that was between Barcelona and Santos. First off, didn't I say Austin that Brazilian sides would struggle once we got to the knockout stage? Uh, I feel like I've uh, been vindicated. With, I mean, it's with hard what, when they have to keep, when they have to keep playing each other. Two of them have cannibalized themselves. Uh, we're never good to start with, and Palmeiras were fairly excuses, beaten. excuses, excuses. Personally, I think we've seen. All the tactical limitations that some of us here have um, have talked about the Brazilian coaches having, and I mean, it's if, kind of been shown up round by round. While the Brazilian teams often possess sort of greater ability individually, for me, you know, but they do struggle as a as a team against certainly sides like Barcelona, who who just seem so much more organised and and hungry as well. I, I would point to the <laughs> I would point to the opening sixty minutes of the first leg when I thought Santos largely outplayed Barcelona and that was the only time that we really oh, got to that's see. a big that's a big statement outplayed I there I, wasn't there wasn't much in that first leg I thought Santos outplayed Barcelona for the first hour uh, and then the second Lucas Lima got hurt this tie kind of shifted and. Santos were a shell of themselves and were unable to get anything going. And yes, that dependency on that one player, that's something that we see a lot. But when he went out with 65 minutes gone in the first leg, Santos were poor for the next 25 minutes of the first leg. They conceded the goal to Alves that got Barcelona back level on aggregate. And then Santos were, for lack of a better term, dreadful in the second leg. They failed to create any chances. They conceded all of the possession to Barcelona, whenever the ball came to Santos, Gian Malta and, and Vecchio in the midfield were just incapable of holding it. I believe they hit the post once early on. David Gibras had a chance that, that could have put them ahead from a set piece. But other than that, they were outplayed tactically. They were outplayed physically. Uh, they sat back as, as deep as humanly possible, it felt like, and just conceded all of the possession to Barcelona, a team that we've seen struggle finish at points in this competition. They struggled in the second leg against Palmeiras and were nearly made pay for it. They struggled at points in this second leg against Santos. There were chances that they couldn't finish. And then finally, it all came together. A terrific cross in from the wing. And Jonathan Alves, the, the Uruguayan striker, got ahead to the ball in a fantastic header it was. Beat Vanderlei cleanly. Barcelona 1-0 up. Now Santos have to score. And they couldn't do it. They had an 11-on-10 situation quickly thereafter. Alves picked up a yellow card uh, for taking his shirt off in the celebration after the goal and then picked up a straight red card two minutes after uh, on a very questionable call when he kind of reached out back with his arm and made contact with a Santos defender. You could maybe argue that it was a second uh, yellow card, but it was by no means a straight red card. That's what he got. 11-on-10, Santos didn't create anything. Then it went to 10 on 9 after Bruno and Hiki decided, well, I like our chances better at 10 on 9, so I'll just literally spit in the face of an opponent. It worked. Bruno and Hiki got himself a red card. Uh, Gabriel Marquez, the, the Brazilian midfielder, though, for Barcelona, retaliated and got a red card himself. So 10 on 9 for the final few minutes, and really the only chance that Santos had was not of their own doing. It was Vangueira, the Barcelona goalkeeper, who flapped at a ball an easily catchable ball straight to him in the six-yard box, and he chose to kind of like go under it with his arms and push it up. Yeah, that was that <laughs> was completely bizarre. That was one of the most weirdest pieces of goalkeeping I've probably ever seen. And so he, I, I think we, I think all at the same time, 
we messaged each other on uh, on WhatsApp. Like, what is he doing? It was absurd. It was it was it was without reason. He flapped it straight through a Santos player, and it didn't deflect in, and it didn't cost him. But my goodness, was it poor? But that was it. Santos were toothless. Copete and Bruno Mahiki were were poor on the wings. There wasn't the service to Ricardo Oliveira. He was invisible, really, in in both of the legs. Uh, Vecchio, the Argentine, who for a period for about four or five months was not even making the bench for Santos, which is really hard to do in Brazil because it's a 23-man squad. So there's there's 12 on the bench every match, and Vecchio wasn't even making the bench, was thrust into a situation that... Yeah, I had had no idea how he was playing in a... Copa Libertadores quarterfinal. Yeah, he looked completely past it. Yeah, I would say you know a couple of years ago here in Chile, and I was surprised when Santos decided to sign him because he had been so poor for Colo Colo towards the end of his career. For him to suddenly be thrown in as as he was basically the replacement for Lucas Lima, right? Which you know is really going from kind of riches to rags there. Yeah, and, and Lever Culpi, the, the Santos manager who, who came in for Dorival Jr. a few months ago, has, has really failed to inspire in his time at Santos. Uh, a lot of draws, a lot of disappointing draws, and, and the football just hasn't been great as, as, you know, as we often see from Brazilian teams. And again, I think this tie is different if Lucas Lima plays in both of the legs. I thought Santos looked as good as they have in the Libertadores for that, for the first portion of that first leg. They were perhaps a bit fortunate to score the way that they did, but then, you know, the second you took their their midfield cog out of it, they had no plan B. They had no way of doing anything, and it cost them. You know, it was always going to be tough to keep Barcelona uh, out of the net in in that second leg, and it didn't feel like Santos were the home team the way that that match was played. It felt like they were on the back foot for the entirety of it, and they're they're justly out of the competition, which has been the storyline for the majority of the Brazilian teams. You know. Uh, I think Chapecoense can be fairly pleased with how they performed, though frustrated in the fact that they were their own undoing for their elimination from this competition, uh, for insisting on fielding an ineligible player. But Flamengo disappointed, Palmeiras disappointed, Santos disappointed, Atlético Mineiro disappointed, Atlético Paranaense, Botafogo, and Grêmio I think are the only three Brazilian sides that can leave the Libertadores feeling good about what they did. Paranaense were always overmatched. To qualify for the knockout stages was a success. Botafogo, as we'll get to in a minute, um, did very, very well with the, the path that they were dealt to get to the quarterfinals. And Gremio, of course, are still playing and, and for my money, still the favorites in this competition. But yeah, it's it's not unfair to say that Brazilian teams have, have vastly underwhelmed in this competition. Yeah, no, in terms of this game, okay, first first of all, Austin, you are so generous to Barcelona, uh, so Santos in the first leg. I'm looking at some of the statistics and obviously they scored earlier and they were looking to defend the lead, but... Okay, in terms of passes, Barcelona made 458 passes. Santos made 177. In terms of pass completion, uh, Barcelona was 87%. Santos was 80%. In terms of possession, again, it was um, uh, 67% Barcelona and 33% Santos. In terms of shots, 10 for uh, Barcelona and 6 for Santos. So I think Barcelona was the better over both legs. And, uh, you know, I do think. That's that's how I remember it, anyway. And again, obviously, me and Adam are just bitter because our our countries have got no representatives left, so we just have to take digs at, at Brazil. But I do I do get frustrated because you know it's not that I don't like Brazilian football. I do like Brazilian football, which is why I'm so frustrated that Brazilian teams are so terrible. 
in terms of if you look at the players that they have, they can basically sign absolutely any anyone in the tournament. They could take their pick from every single Barcelona player, every single player from any league in the in the continent. Almost any Brazilian side could pick out the best five players and sign them. Combined with bringing back Brazilian players from Europe on on million dollar contracts and. You know, it's just frustrating that a team with so much talent, you, you walk through a, a street in Rio and you'll see kids who are incredible. You you know, you go to the beach and there's there's girls playing football, you know, at an incredible level, putting me to shame completely. And it's like a country of so much talent. How can they play such terrible football? The Monero game, obviously, I've mentioned over and over again, but it was just ridiculous. Like, I, I couldn't. Um, if you supported a Sunday League team and all they, you would pull your hair out and you would think, I don't come to watch League Two football to see this kind of terrible play. And it's like Brazilian players are so good; they have such great technique. Why, why not trust them to keep the ball? And why are we getting it forward so much? So that's my little rant. But this game was interesting. Um, I think Santos played very deep again in the second. You know, I think Santos is one of the teams that plays. Slightly better football, much more attractive than um, the Monero from, from, from my perspective. And obviously, Lucas Lima is a big part of that. And you're right, he was very much missed in the second leg. Um, but Santos played very, very deep. Barcelona obviously have incredible pace on the counter-attack. And they were very wary of that, Santos. And at times, Barcelona on the counter would run from the halfway line to the Santos box without any pressure. And obviously, what Santos were relying on is Barcelona being wasteful as they have quite regularly they've got a lot of balls into the box but they've obviously not converted that many but in this this game they had that cross perfectly headed in and it was a very nice goal for Barcelona and, and it paid off so Barcelona is an interesting team very dangerous team not particularly clinical not particularly polished but they have a clear idea and they can be very dangerous on the pace and the power on the counter-attack some skillful wingers getting a lot of things into the box and it's kind of percentages. If you put the ball into the box 50 times, driven across from with pace from the wings, and you hit a few shots from outside the box, then there's a good chance something will pay off. And uh, eventually they got their rewards, I think, in this time. Yeah, definitely. Um, we, we were talking pre-pod about Barcelona's playmaker, that Damien Diaz. For me, he's been disappointing in the Liberty stories, which is kind of credit, really, to Barcelona, the fact that they've got this far with kind of their number 10. For me, underwhelming. I think a better player in his role in this team, then you would see this Barcelona side score a lot more goals than than they do. As as wasteful as they are, a lot of their chances are more half chances than full chances. And also, Diaz doesn't really contribute much himself towards the towards the goal tally. So I think you know a better number ten there. I, th- I think we would have seen a more prolific Barcelona in this competition. Another player, you know, we've got to speak about Jonathan Alves a little bit more. For me, he was a little bit over-pumped up for this game. But, you know, kind of in a Luis Suarez type way, you know, he really drove the side on in both legs, really. And although he did look a little bit out of sorts on the ball at times, you know, he did end up heading home the winner in this tie around the hour mark. And although he got sent off just a minute later, Although, like like Austin said, I you know, I, and I agree. I thought that was a bit harsh, really, the sending off. But he's he's going to be a big miss for them in the semi-finals. I don't know if they're going to try and get that overturned or not. But you know, it's it's difficult to get red cards overturned. So I'm not sure we're going to see him in that first leg, unfortunately, which is a blow to this competition because he he's been a fun player to watch at times. 
that one man advantage that the that Santos had for a little bit, you barely noticed noticed it. And well, you didn't know. I didn't notice it really. I thought that Barcelona certainly in the second leg hunted impacts magnificently throughout the throughout the game. Really closed off pretty much all the options that um, Santos passing options that Santos had, especially in 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 their in their half. And Austin's already talked about how much the loss of Lucas Lima impacted on the Brazilians. But you know, I I, I personally think the that uh, Barcelona may still have had enough to win this anyway, even if Lima was on the pitch for Santos. They've shown themselves to be a really good side on the road in this competition. You know, a bit wasteful, as, as we've all, all, all mentioned, but they certainly create a lot of chances and they're certainly one of the best sides on the counter-attack in the Libertadores this year. I think it is also worth noting that this is a Barcelona side that has now, of course, beaten Palmeiras and, and Santos. And just before... The knockout stages they they lost one of their best players from the group stage of this competition in the shape of midfielder christian alaman i'm sure you guys remember him he had he had like quite big hair going on and um he, he moved he moved to argentina um and has had a good start to his career there with estudiantes just 21 so looks like he's got a he's got a good future ahead of him and yeah i i, th- I think that sums up the barcelona santos tie Nicely, and of course, Barcelona now face another Brazilian side in in the next round in the semi-finals, and that is Grêmio. After they edged out Botafogo one 0 over over two legs, and Austin, you had your eyes on this one. Maybe you can talk us through it. Well, I had one eye on this one. I had the other eye on the Santos Barcelona tie because. Thanks to Conable's inexplicable decision, they were both played at the exact same time, both times. So it was impossible to watch just one. So there was definitely one eye on each of the matches, which did make it a bit hard. But yes, two Brazilian sides in the Libertadores quarterfinal. You know I'm going to be there. This was not the best that Grêmio have looked in this competition. But I think this was maybe the most encouraging that they have looked. Because Grêmio came into this not at 100%. Their best player, Luan... Missed the first leg and played one minute in the second leg. He was on the bench, but it was pretty clear that he wasn't in the type of position where he could feature. Their best defender, Pedro Jeromel, did not play in the first leg, which caused Bresson to have to come into the starting 11. And he's been up and down for Gremio this year. Uh, and then Jeromel did return for the second leg and was a big reason why, why Gremio were able to eventually get through. And they, they cl- kept a pair of clean sheets, which was, I think, remarkably impressive. This is a Botafogo side that do not have the individual talent to maybe overly impress you, but the team spirit and the way that they play their football is good. And, and they've shown that throughout the Libertadores with the teams that they have beaten. You know, it's, it's a who's who of collection of the, of the sides that both the Fogo ended up running through in this competition. Nacional in the round of 16, Atletico Nacional, the defending champions were in their group and both the Fogo got out of that. You know, in the, in the playoff round, they had to go through Colo Colo, one of the biggest sides in Chile, and, and that's among others. So credit to both Fogo for what they did in this competition. I think they were, they, they more than did what was expected of them under their manager, Virgilio Ventura, and it looks like they're probably going to be back next year, which I think is, is a good thing for this competition. As for Gremio, they kept a nil-nil in the first leg. I think that's what they meant to do. Jair Ventura went a bit more attacking in that first leg. He chose to put Leo Valencia, the Chilean midfielder, into the starting 11 to give them a bit more in the attack. Botafogo were not able to turn that into a goal. 
They didn't concede too many chances, and it finished nil-nil, and it kind of felt finally poised. And then Gremio, it was kind of a race. Were they going to be able to get Luan back for that second leg? As I said, they did not get him back, but they still had just enough. I thought Botafogo played really well in the second leg. They had some chances. They could have gone ahead. It was a pretty even match all around. And then Lucas Barrios, the Potawayan international who, since being released from Palmeiras at the start of the year, has shown up in Porto Alegre and, and has really come up in big moments for Gremio. And he did it again here with a header past his, his fellow countryman, Gachito Fernandez. That was the lone goal, and that was the only goal that Gremio needed. They got through this 1-0 over the two legs, as Adam said, and are into the semifinals. As I said earlier, they've been the most impressive Brazilian side in this competition. They've been the most consistent Brazilian side in this competition. And it is it deserves semifinal appearance for Gremio. Make no doubts about it. I think they have they have certainly shown enough. And I think they are fortunate in that had this semifinal been taking place a few days from now when we record this, they would still have those same injury questions. Luan is not 100%. Pedro Jeromel is probably not 100%. But the fact that they get over a month until the end of October when this when these legs come around is huge because they can take their time with Luan. They're pretty much out of the running for the Brazilian championship now because they've just consistently dropped points with their reserve 11 ahead of Libertadores matches. And that has meant that, that Corinthians are running away with that. So it's all eyes on, on the Copa Libertadores for Gremio. And they're going to build their entire program for, for the rest of the year around that. And that means the health of Luan, the health of Jeromel, keeping everybody else healthy, not overworking everybody else. And, and having the focus to know, all right, here's what we need to do against Barcelona over two legs. And, and I think that's going to be advantageous for them. Yeah, Austin, I, I've, you know, for me, I think, you know, Gremio have definitely been the most impressive Brazilian side in this competition. And I think I've been pretty consistent in saying that, you know, from the group stage onwards, they've looked like the Brazilian side most likely to prove me wrong um, with my prediction that no Brazilian side would get to a final. But I, I'm, I'm still, I'm still um, staying true to my prediction there. I, I think that Barcelona can beat them over two legs, but I think this is Barcelona's toughest game to date, without a doubt. Yeah, just a quick question for you, Austin. Just here from the kind of uh, the Chile perspective. I know that Leo Valencia started the second leg. Um, I think I'm right in saying he started. How, the, how he did started he the, started the first leg? Came off the bench. Started the, the first. Leg. Right. Okay. And how, how did you think he did? To me, it looks like he's had a fairly kind of slow start there, really, in Brazil. Yeah, I think he's he's come into a squad and he hasn't really hit the ground running yet. Um, I think Jair Ventura likes what he brings from an attacking perspective. And that's why he chose to start him in that first leg, because he did want the more attacking 11 against a Gremio side that did not have their best player, Luan. But... Yeah, he hasn't kind of been tearing the world up for both the Fogo. That that doesn't mean certainly that that it's been a failed move for him. There's still there's still plenty of time for that to turn into um, a good situation for him. But he didn't stand out or obviously win the match for both Fogo or anything like that in in either of his appearances in this round. Yeah, we were talking pre pod about a couple of interesting uh, commonable issues. I think we're going to speak about them now on the pod. The first of which is a. Uh, and and you alluded it alluded to it earlier, Austin. The uh, the scheduling of uh, these Copa Libertadores semifinals, as uh, as you're not too happy. Well, we're all not too happy, really. But one of them clashes with probably 
one of the most interesting Copa Sudamericana games to date so far. Something we saw in the quarterfinals as well, where they had Corinthians against Racing. You know, a really interesting tie there, and that and that clashed with with uh, with a Libertadores quarterfinal as well. Uh, it's really frustrating, though. Yeah, I didn't get to see a minute of Corinthians Racing because there were two Libertadores matches on at the same time. I can't watch three matches at once. It's, it's hard enough to do two. And it happens again here in the semifinal. Um, Gremio and, and Barcelona, both of those matches will be as, as is often the case with big Brazilian midweek matches. You know, Wednesday night at, at 9.45 local time in Brazil after, of course, the, the soap operas are done for the night. And... It's the exact same time that Flamengo-Fluminense, the quarterfinal and the Sulemanicana, both legs are scheduled. So there's probably not going to be the opportunity for me to see much of, of Fla-Flu either, which is, a, I think, a really intriguing tie. And Carnival does themselves a disservice for scheduling all of these matches at the same time. You have essentially six windows to work with if you think about it. You know, two on Tuesday, two on Wednesday, and two on Thursday. And with four quarterfinals and two Libertadores semifinals, that's six matches. You would think that they would just spread them out evenly over those six windows, but they don't. And so we're stuck with situations where you can't watch Fla Flu because Gremio Barcelona is on at the exact same time. And it just doesn't help the Sul Americana for its matches to be overshadowed by these Libertadores matches. And this is basically all the fault of Brazilian TV companies, right? Eh, probably, yeah. With the insistence on having 945 matches... Globo and Rio de Janeiro would rather show Fla Flu at that time than Gremio Barcelona because Gremio don't have that nationwide appeal. Uh, Corinthians was shown in, in a lot of areas of Brazil when they were playing Racing. Santos was relegated to only their town on open TV. So, yeah, for the most part, it can probably be, be down to TV contracts and TV companies, as is normally the case. <laughs> and the semifinals will see the introduction of VAR, the Video Assistant Referee Technology. We've discussed this before on World Football Index Pods. I've seen it work well in in, in Germany and Italy um, this season. Um, certainly a lot better than it did in the Confederations Cup. I'm yet to be completely convinced by it, and uh, I remain sceptical for now. I think Simon is is with me on that. Austin, you're more of a fan of it, I believe. No, not at all. No? No. Oh, oh okay. I think Sorry. Xavier uh, Xavier is the one advocate. I think uh, have. Yeah, Javier is the is the is the fan of um, is the fan of VAR, and and, it, and he's not here to defend it. So we can all we can all lay into it. But I think even he would probably have to say that it's a little bit bizarre introducing it into the semi-finals and the final of the competition here in South America, and with all the potential chaos and controversy that might that might entail no yeah i mean for me um again i'm i'm generally against it uh, in as a you know in anything apart from an objective decision i think it's just a crazy idea because you know there's there's no there's everything's open to interpretation and football is based upon the decision of the referee and maybe the referee will make a good decision maybe you'll decide that his decision was in your opinion incorrect but if it's a subjective decision, was it a foul? Was it excessive force? Was it, uh, you know, intentional in terms of a handball? That one drives me mad. Intentional, intentional. It's in bold in the rules. It has to be intentional. But all of these things are subjective decisions. It's very difficult to come to a conclusive decision when you're talking about a subjective decision. And a lot of these are open to interpretation. So 
the basic for me the basic point is that there's never going to be a correct decision everyone's going to disagree and by having a third party or having replays it implies that a correct decision is possible it implies that with all of these different facets these different angles it will be possible for the referee to come to a decision which everyone will be happy with which is obviously not the case <laughs> no one's ever happy but for me the point is this is football this is how everything you know this is how it works you go to a game the referee makes a decision you think it's terrible everyone hates the referee we <laughs> you know in south america the referee will have things thrown at him and abuse thrown at him whether the team wins 4-0 or it's it's a 0-0 game the referee is going to be the villain regardless. And by putting in this system, it implies that it's possible. The referee has additional support. There's additional expectation. But it all comes down to a subjective decision. If we're talking about things like fouls, if we're talking about things even like handballs. Because, okay, the ball hit the player's hand. That's fine. But did he mean it? Because if he didn't mean it, it's not a handball. And in the vast majority of cases, the player didn't mean it. So I think that's a decision that's always incorrectly given, generally, at any level. But I think as well, you combine that with the intensity of the South American stadiums, the infrastructure, you know, the referees have to have multiple shields being held over their heads as they walk off the pitch. And they, they'll put female police officers walking alongside the referees because studies have shown people are less lo- likely to throw, you know, coins or urine at, at female police officers than they would be to just male officers. So there's all these considerations. It, even getting teams to the stadium with their kits has proved problematic this so far this season. Um, so in terms of having a system that is set up and is reliable and is you know not open to abuse or manipulation by the home team, if the referees have to walk over to the crowd to make a decision, that's a, a dangerous situation. It's going to create increased tensions. You know, South American players are, are very passionate, and there doesn't need to be much poking or provoking to to get the game to boil over um this these games are so important you know i just think there's so many factors that mean this is something that makes you know that, that damages the experience of the fans obviously the goal goes in let's go and have a look at the video replay that's been five minutes over there uh i just think i think everyone just needs to basically accept that sometimes referees are wrong and it's a game and grow up would be my uh, objection. Uh, aside from all of the technical aspects and the, you know, whether it's something that can be made to be, you know, to be enhanced, and you know, maybe five percent of the decisions are then correct when they would be usually incorrect. That's all fine, but when it comes down to it, a lot of these decisions are subjective, so it's still coming down to the opinion, and there's not necessarily a great percentage chance that the opinion will change, and also the expectation changes. So for me everything related to VAR is, is negative. And I, basically, for me, I don't really care if a small number of decisions are, are, are made correctly when they would used to be made incorrectly. If it, if it affects my team, I feel, I feel terrible. I feel cheated. I feel betrayed. I feel, you know, frustrated. But, you know, that's football. That's, that's what, that, you know, that, what, would, what would we talk about if everything was correct? That's all part of the fun. Yeah, I, I think we've already seen, certainly in the beginning or the early stages of the use of VAR, that it doesn't eliminate controversy, really. It, it kind of adds to it. And that's my fear here in the semi in the semi-finals and finals. You've got referees who have only recently been trained on how to apply it properly. And, and we saw this problem in the Confederations Cup where, you know, it, it was it was just not used well. 
and it delayed the game. And hearing the Leopard stories, you know, I think we've joked about this before. Yeah, you can you can see all sorts of things happening. Like, you know, if a last-minute goal goes in against the home team, for example, what, ch- what are the chances that the whole electricity in the stadium will be shut down? It's, it's absurd because I have fundamental disagreements with, with video assistant review as a concept. I don't agree with it in any use. As Simon said, I think the only things that should be reviewable are cases of mistaken identity for cards, which can be easily correctable, and goal line technology, which can prove without a shadow of a doubt if a ball entered the goal or did not enter the goal. Other than that, I don't see any need for it. But regardless of that, putting that aside... To introduce it at the semifinals of a huge competition when you know it's not going to go 100% smoothly. There's just no way that this goes off without a hitch. It's just, it just seems so short-sighted by Conmable. And I don't think that, I think this is probably going to make things end up being worse than they would have been had we just had regular officials making their usual mistakes. Now we'll have video officials making mistakes. And in the semifinals of, of the the biggest tournament on the continent. I just, it just doesn't make sense to me. And I, I do, I hope that it goes off without any hitches, but man, I'm worried. For example, this is obviously the final. These are all relatively big stadiums. Um, but also one, one point is I think the referees often rely and lean too much on it as well, because it's such an impossible job being a referee in South America in a big game. And these are as big as the games possibly can be. And the referees will just go, oh, I'll go and check the video. And then I'll, you know, I can blame the video. I can blame the video referee. I can blame the angle I was given. It wasn't me. You know, I checked, I checked it. I did my best. What can I say? You know, any excuse to kind of alleviate the pressure on the referee is a negative thing for me. And then also, we're talking about some big stadiums, but there are tiny teams in the Libertadores. You know, my team in Vigado could qualify. And they have no, they have no boards around the stadium. Like you go from what is basically a Sunday league ground and how are you going to implement this kind of technology? Where is this? It's just, no, it's just em, crazy. If, 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 if Vigado did qualify, they would have to play at a, a stadium which can seat, what, 10,000? 10,000 capacity is a minimum and then it's got to meet some other requirements as well. So they'd probably be forced to play in the, uh, one of the other stadiums there. Well, yeah, maybe, but we have seen some very small. I mean, Independiente del Valle have played some games in a in a very small stadium. Obviously, the finals they played at a bigger stadium, but they had a very small stadium. I think there are some stadiums that host games in the Libertadores that, again, you know, in terms of a lot of different factors, it's a diff- it's an additional complication logistically for for the team because, as I say, every South American game I see the referee leave. He's escorted. There's a big tunnel dragged out into the pitch so they don't get anything thrown on them or there's police have to hold shields above their heads. You add increased tension and make the referee trot over to the, to the stands, you know, three or four times a game and delay everything. I just think it's going to create a lot of difficult situa- situations for, for the staff and for the referees and for the, for the crowd security and all these different issues. Personally, I just find it frustrating that Commodore feel the need to kind of, you know, meddle so much with a, with a great competition, really, as it was for many years. And now they want to bring in a number of changes. And another one we discussed uh, pre-pod was, you know, a possible change of venue for the final, say, to go from, say, a two-legged final, which is traditional here. And I think works great because of the vast distances involved on the, on the continent. You know, it, it's 
you can't really have a final at a neutral venue because there's very few people here who could afford to travel and see their team at a neutral venue for a final. Just just as one example of a final could be, you know, if Lanús faced um, Barcelona in the in the final, and I'd imagine then that they would choose what the American are maybe in Rio for the final. That's, that's an expensive flight, hotel, ticket. Yeah, it's, it's, it's beyond the means of many people here in South America to do that. Yes, it's not like Europe where you can easily get around time-wise and money-wise the continent on a plane. So that, that's something I'm dreading coming in and it's probably going to come in from next year. But of course, we're all fearing that they're suddenly going to announce after the semi-finals that, that they're going to do it this year. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the thing is as well, like, I know with the Colombian teams, and again, this is only speaking of the most popular ones, they'll get, they'll fill a load of buses and they'll, they'll ship out the, the most hardcore fans. And they'll, and they'll, you know, they'll get a decent crowd to the, to the, to the game, wherever it is in South America. But one of the great things about these big high profile Libertadores games is the whole city gets involved. And, you know, the stadium, which is usually half full, suddenly is completely packed and there's a three hour queue to get a ticket and it's, something your grandma wants to be a part of because it's a celebration of the city and, you know, people who, you know, want to be a part of this big celebration of of the club and the city and, you know, want to be involved and maybe they don't go to every league game. But when it comes to these big, uh, important occasions where the city is represented against other cities and other countries and it's high profile and it, it means something and there's trophies, you know, everyone, even the most casual fans want to be a part of that, whether that be, enjoying in the celebrations around the stadium or it means getting tickets to the game you know these are the these are the memories that people have and they'll talk about oh back in 84 you know we got to the final libertadores and we won this game and i was in the stadium and it was crazy and you know there's these are huge huge moments for even because you know the most dedicated fans will find a way of getting anywhere because they're mad and they'll spend 40 hours on a bus but it's the whole city coming together which is one of the great things about having a two-legged final. It, you know, it means you really fill the stadium. Of lots of people having one-off, life, once-in-a-lifetime experiences of seeing that team they follow for 50 years doing nothing suddenly get into a final. You know, if Barcelona won the Copa de Vizdores and they had a thousand fans, it would really devalue that moment. You know, it's something that European fans obviously won't be used to, but it's such a big deal when the final comes to your city. And your team's playing and you can support them and be a part of that. You know, it'd be such a shame if corporate interests mean that, you know, there's a, the stadium's filled with you know, a thousand passionate fans in a best case scenario. And just a load of neutrals who've turned up or sponsors or, you know, just guys who are school kids who are given a few tickets to go to this this big game in the city. You know, that would just, uh, it's kind of nice to have those kids there. But it's not the same as having people invested in the club, filling the stadium for these one-off occasions. And it's, and it also adds to the, the flavor and the, the context because the home game, you want to make as much atmosphere as possible to lift your team. Cause you know, the away game, your team's going to be up against it because they're going to do their best to make things as pressurized and as passionate for their home team when you go over there. So the whole dynamic and the whole intrigue and character is going to be slightly chipped away. If, uh, if that final isn't that, that you know head-to-head showpiece that we we enjoy let's go round the virtual table and tell us um your twitter handle and latest plugs that you have simon yeah so i'm si- uh, at simon edwards saf on twitter 
I've got two things I'm trying to get done and they're going to happen soon. I, I'm speaking to Hamilton Ricard every day. I speak to him. Hey, Hamilton, what's up? How can we do it later? Okay, so I'm going to be interviewing Hamilton Ricard for a special South American football show as soon as I get hold of him. He's a busy man. He plays a lot of Sunday League football um, nowadays. Uh, so that's going to be quite interesting to hear about his time in Middlesbrough and see how he enjoyed the exotic Northern England uh, weather and culture. Uh, and also maybe speak to George Saunders and get his perspective coming from England to Colombia. So that's something I'm looking forward to doing. And I'm going to continue my eight set of Colombian football at some point quite soon. So you can hassle me on Twitter and say, where is it? Hurry up, sort it out, stop in, stop enjoying your weekend so much and get right in. So they're on their way soon. And Austin? I am at Austin underscore James 906 on Twitter. Um, we've got Conmobile World Cup qualifying coming up next week. Um, I'm sure that the tensions are high in both Chile and Colombia ahead of those. Those should be fascinating. Obviously, there will be plenty of coverage from that here on WFI and, and for myself on my Twitter feed. Um, so just give me a follow there. Brazilian Copa do Brasil final will be this Wednesday night of this week. Flamengo and Cruzeiro. Winner gets a group stage spot in next year's Libertadores. So that should be fun. Finally, the second leg is, is all for the taking 1-1. No away goals. Uh, and then the Brazilian league continues to uh, tumble along. Corinthians have all but wrapped it up, despite not being that impressive in the second leg, in the second half of the season, I should say. Uh, but relegation should be quite intriguing with a lot of teams still in danger of that. So uh, keep up with all of that with me on Twitter. Again, that's at Austin underscore James 906. Okay, and you can find me at Adam Brandon 84 on Twitter. Nothing to plug for now, but hoping to get one or two things out in October. The tone of that will probably depend on how Chile get on next week. Something I'm already getting nervous for again. This gang will be back at the end of next week to discuss those South American World Cup qualifiers. In the meantime, rate and review us on iTunes. And that's all from us for now. Thank you for listening and goodbye.